Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. That is Psalm 19 verses nine and 10. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us for the 15th bonus episode in our series, what every adoptive and foster parent needs to know about trauma and FASD with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. We are digging into topics of vital importance for all of us foster adoptive and kinship caregivers. So grab a notebook and a pen. You will want to take notes. Uh, Feel free to pause the podcast right now so you can go grab one or just listen through and then listen a second time with a notebook and pen um, because we have such good content. You will not want to miss a word. Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop in your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown are bonus episodes that we drop on Fridays. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe, even leave a review. It makes a huge impact because when you do, it helps other adoptive foster and kinship caregivers find us. And we believe this podcast is a vital resource for our parenting journey. So take a moment and subscribe. Uh, Let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know. Share about our episodes on your social media. Um, That way we can really spread the word and provide this vital resource. Um, Speaking of vital resources, um, stay tuned because we have some uh, trainings coming up. Uh, and other resources for your parenting journey. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And... Coming up in early 2023, I'll be offering two online workshops. The first one is a free 45-minute lunch and learn, which is an introduction to FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. That will be on Wednesday, January 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And I'm going to be doing a three-hour kind of like a deep dive into FASD using the FACETS neurobehavioral model. Um, It's uh, on neurobehavioral conditions, including FASD, understanding and application of the FACETS brain-based approach. That three-hour workshop will be on Saturday, January 21st 
which is um, I'm offering it on a Saturday just to see how many people, if that's a good time slot. Uh, and that will be at 10 a.m. Eastern time. There is a registration fee for the deep dives for the three hour. Um, but to register for either, because you have to register for either one, even the free one, um, you can register on our website at justicefororphansny.org uh, backslash click events. Uh, we will include a link to our website in the show notes for this episode to make it easy for you to find and, and to register. Now to our guest, Dr. Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also certified as a youth fire setting prevention intervention specialist, an anger resolution therapist, a thinking for a change facilitator, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorders trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. He knows all of the things, and that's why we have him here with us. Please welcome back Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared. Hey, Sandra. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Great to have you back. Is there snow where you are? There's snow where I am. Three or four inches. Very boring around here in terms of Very weather. Boring. Yeah. Yes. Well, I want I'm more. Up, <laughs> yes. I'm up in the Adirondacks of upstate New York uh, recording remotely, and I've got about eight to 10 inches here. But our friends, a couple hours west down in the Buffalo area, they were slammed with record breaking like five feet of snow. So I'm kind of glad I'm not there. Amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So last week, uh, you unpacked for us the impact of um, sugar consumption on the brain, especially individuals with an FASD. Today, we're going to zero in on sugary sweetened beverages. I think this is a big one. Uh, since here in the United States, I'm thinking soda, sweet tea, and the flavored coffee beverages, which are very popular. Um, you know, they're a huge part of our culture. So, Jared, is there a difference between the sugary food consumption and sugary sweetened beverage intake? Well, sugar sweetened beverage intake is like a liquid carbohydrate, and it's one of the ways in which people get a lot of added sugar in their diet. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine that it's really, we're, we're, we're drinking it and not even realizing how much we're consuming. Absolutely. And I mean, when I was younger, I drank this stuff too, and I didn't know anything about it. And you just did it because everyone did it and everyone around you did it and every place that you ever stepped foot in sold it and you didn't think twice of it. Yeah. And that's, that's like, you know, soda, we, we all grew up with lots of soda around us, but now it seems like that culture is, you know, I think of the, um, 
you know, all of the coffee shops and all the convenience places and every place that everybody's getting their flavored coffees and their, you know, caramel lattes and mocha things and just all of those, whether they're cold or hot, um, just have become sort of a staple of everybody's diet, it seems. So um, I'm sure that that's also um, only exacerbated the intake of sugar in the American diet. Definitely. And again, I will be coming at this through the lens of behavioral health. And everything I'm saying is supported in the research literature. And I would recommend before implementing any any strategies, again, talk to your healthcare provider, talk to a nutritionist. This is just general education. And through an FASD lens, there is virtually nothing in terms of empirical-based research that has looked at this topic within the context of FASD. However, there are a ton of studies that have looked at sugar-sweetened beverages on health effects of all kinds of populations. And there's actually a good handful of studies that have looked at sugar-sweetened beverage consumption among people on the autism spectrum. What I can say anecdotally, cases I've consulted on, very, very high percentage of the clients with FASD seem to have a problematic relationship with sugar. And lots of clients that I've known personally absolutely drink excessive amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages. There's uh, one case I consulted on. The gentleman drank two separate two liters of soda every single day. I, I, I can't get my head around that. So we'll, we'll talk about all these things. But when you think of the basics of sugar-sweetened beverages, I mentioned before, it's a liquid carbohydrate. It's a threat to our health, no doubt about it. I mean, if you have one here and there, probably no big deal. But I'm more looking at the lens of kind of a lifestyle. This is continuous use every day, multiple times a day over long, long periods of time. Depending mm-hmm. on what study you look at, what website you look at, some say it's the single largest source of calories and added sugar in our American diets. Sugar sweet beverages, there's a lot of them out there, but think it's not, it's any non-diet, non-alcoholic beverage with added sugar. I'll talk about a lot of the different ones that fall under the umbrella. Obviously, drinking soda or pop are at the top of the list. And they typically provide little to no nutritional value. They're typically less filling than solid foods. They can be hot or cold drinks. And when people drink these drinks, they typically, in a lot of cases, continue to feel hungry after drinking them, despite the fact that they contain a ton of calories, which looking at the obesity epidemic and metabolic dysfunction and blood sugar dysregulation, I mean, we have to consider this topic. I'm not saying it's a direct, direct cause. Some people may say it is. Some people say it's indirect, but it's a factor we need to take into account. So I'll go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I was going to ask you to share what the research shows. What is that impact of sugary, sweetened beverage consumption? Yeah. First, like, what are the beverages that fall under this umbrella? So first of all, energy drinks with sugar, fruit punches, regular soda. Sometimes you see slushies included under the definition, depending on what definition you look at. Sports drinks. And there's some studies that say, I've come across this, 
that sports drinks are marketed to athletes, but the majority of people who drink sports drinks are not athletes. So take that into account. Sweetened coffees, sweetened iced teas, sweetened packaged drinks, sweetened powdered drinks, sweetened waters, vitamin waters with lots of sugar added, all of those things. So when we think of the consequences associated with excessive sugar-sweetened beverage consumption, lots of studies that have studied many subtopics. Allostatic load has been studied within this context. Allostatic load is wear and tear in the body, and it's just kind of a, a biological marker for just our bodies aging too fast. It's been studied within the context of increased inflammation, loneliness, sedentary behaviors. So people that live a sedentary lifestyle, some articles point to the fact that they may be more likely to consume sugar-sweetened beverages and other sugar products. It's been looked at within the context of behavioral problems and asthma, insulin sensitivity, kidney disease, non-alcoholic liver disease, obesity, depression, dental issues, tooth decay, weakened bones, increased risk of fractures, heart disease, gout, the list goes on and on and on and on. There's there's a lot of studies on this. So this is not something that is often trained about and talked about in my world of mental health or criminal justice. I've never come across a training for mental health providers or criminal justice providers that talk about these topics. I've been doing a lot more podcasts and I am developing professional trainings on these topics because I believe it's that important. So some of the correlates that come up in the literature that indicate maybe some reasons why certain groups may consume higher levels of sugar-sweetened beverage consumption, the topic of affordability comes up. These are cheap and they taste good. Sometimes they're marketed with packaging that looks fun and other people do it. The commercials look fun. Hey, I want to get in, get in on this. Lower physical activity. So again, living a sedentary lifestyle. Lower socioeconomic status is a possible correlate. So you don't have a lot of money. Sometimes you might be more likely to shop at places that serve or provide food that is cheaper, that might not be that good for you. Availability in the home has been studied within this context. So this is where parental modeling comes into play. So if parents are consuming this, if the soda is always in the home, the kids are probably going to be consuming this. Excessive screen time exposure has been studied, and some studies point to the fact that people that are on the screen for long periods of time may be more likely to consume these kind of products. People that have a tendency to consume fast food as part of their daily diets, of course, absolutely. Smoking, so people who smoke cigarettes, that could be a factor. Just general overall poor like health literacy or nutritional literacy or just have a general disposition to have poor dietary or healthy living habits. Unemployment could be a factor for some. There's probably reasons for that. Loneliness, depression, not having a lot of money, boredom, 
comes to mind. Lower levels of education could be a factor for some. Low maternal age, low maternal education, low availability of having fruit or vegetable intake in the, in the house. Living very close to a convenience store or a fast food joint. What's the peer network like? They found, obviously, if all the peers are, are doing this, it's more likely the, the other individual will do it. So lots and lots of variables to take into account. These are just a few that what the research says. Any thoughts, questions, Sandra, on that? Yeah, so... Um... So it's definitely very easy to access. It's sort of just part of the American diet, almost um, culturally speaking. So Jared, what are the, like looking through that behavioral lens, and I'm always thinking from the perspective of an adoptive or foster parent, we've got children, we've got teenagers, um, they've got the trauma history. Many have been prenatally exposed. So um, what would you say, um, you know, how, what impact does does the uh, excessive sugary sweetened beverage intake? What impact does it have behaviorally on, say, our kids? There's a handful of studies that have shown, at least in these studies, that excessive consumption of sugar sweetened beverages exacerbates executive functioning impairments. So, take that into account because if you are the parent of a child with FASD or a child that's had extensive trauma or some sort of neurocognitive or neurodevelopmental impairment, the hallmark deficit is executive functioning impairments. Does consuming a ton of sugar-sweetened beverages exacerbate that? Tough to know. I would say most likely, yes. If it, it's been shown in the general population to exacerbate executive functioning impairments, which we know under the umbrella of executive function is inhibition, working memory, cognitive flexibility. We've also talked in this series about abstract reasoning, um, information processing, those kind of things. There's a, a couple studies that have also looked at what role does impulsivity play here? So not being able to put on those brakes, pausing, reflecting, people having low levels of impulse control might be more likely to overeat or binge eat. And they've actually studied this within the context of sugar-sweetened beverages. There was a study, I believe, don't quote me on the, the year, I think it was 2014, that looked at excessive sugar-sweetened beverage consumption and sugar-sweetened snack consumption. And in that study, they found that the consumption of these products to the excess impacted inhibition, our internal parking brake, and contributed to poor decision-making abilities as well. So really fascinating stuff there. There's a study actually earlier this year that looked at high intake foods that really represented a very poor diet. And part of that was sugar-sweetened beverage consumption along with sugar-sweetened treats and things like that. And this particular study found that it increased the odds of the individuals having mathematical difficulties. So it had an impact on learning. So really fascinating study there. I know another study that has looked at this within the context of mental health. I mean, there's a lot of studies that looked at it, mental health, but they found that sugar-sweetened beverage consumption 
may increase the risk for depression. So if you just look at the nutritional literature in general and how it might be associated with depression, just be aware again, at the top of the list is sugar sweetened beverage consumption. They study that, but they're also, they typically look at like other processed foods. So if someone has a diet that is very, very high in like fast food or even processed pastries and croissants and muffins and donuts and just things that are produced in like a factory or commercially baked goods, I mean, they're loaded with sugar and preservatives and things of that nature. Be aware of that. There's a few studies that talk about this within the context of trauma. Now, the ACES research, the Adverse Childhood Experiences literature, does lean to the fact that extensive childhood trauma, when it goes unchecked and unaddressed, may contribute to more problematic relationships with food and maybe an increased likelihood of obesity and maybe an increased likelihood of that person turning to foods that may calm them down in the short term like processed foods, things like that. But in the long term, it just amplifies a lot of these underlying issues. Mm. There's a few studies that have looked at diets and within the context of FASD, there's not a lot out there. But the limited research to date, at least with these smaller sample sizes, leans to the fact that at least in these studies that they may be more likely to want to consume a diet more high in simple sugars and that might have lack of micronutrients and they might have more feeding patterns that are more selective as well. So they might have more narrow, rigid eating patterns. So just be aware of that. I mean, small sample sizes, small amount of studies, but at least anecdotally, I see it come up. I hear it a lot from caregivers and other professionals who have experience with this topic. They do see it happen frequently. Unfortunately, too, there is evidence to support the fact that a sizable minority of infants consume sugar-sweetened beverages during the first year of life. And I know there is research out there that points to the fact that Infants that first year of life should not have sugar-sweetened beverages because it can be very detrimental to brain and body development. And it could increase the likelihood for that child who had a, maybe a lot of sugar-sweetened beverages during infancy to be at greater risk for childhood obesity as they get older. So I don't, Sandra, have you heard of the first thousand days of life research? Have we talked about that before? I've heard of it. I'm not very familiar with it, but what you're saying makes a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, but go ahead with what you were going to say about it. So your audience, I would just recommend learning about the first thousand days of life research. So basically the first thousand days of life starts at day one of conception and then go out from a thousand days from there. And they say that research, that's a extremely critical time, obviously, for getting good nutrition forming healthy attachments, promoting language, promoting sensory, promoting self-regulation. I mean, of course, that's in utero development and early childhood development, but just being aware of the first thousand days of life intervention and approaches. And the sugar-sweetened beverage consumption literature 
does talk a little bit about this within that first thousand days of life. And for the most part, avoiding that. And that there's been studies too, looking at prenatal sugar sweetened beverage exposure too. So mm-hmm. there, there's actually quite a bit of studies that, that look at that. So before I move into a few more variables, any other things you want me to cover with that kind of first section? Um, just one thing had popped into my mind because I, I know it's my understanding, especially where there's fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, it's those 428 comorbidities that can uh, be associated with an FASD. I was just thinking about, you know, some of those and how the sugary sweetened beverages and and consuming a lot of sugar would also exacerbate those health problems. We don't have empirical data to say that does, but common sense, if it's been studied within the context of all kinds of other disorders and you hear it anecdotally, you have nothing to lose by consulting with a nutritionist and maybe setting up a sugar sweetened beverage consumption reduction plan or an elimination plan, because this is my own opinion. Nothing good comes out from consuming these kind of beverages. It's not good for your teeth. It's not good for your gut. It's not good for your sleep. It's not good for inflammation, regardless of whoever the person is. So I I know lots of people that consume these beverages at excess and they're dealing with lots of problems, lots of problems. I'm not saying it's a direct cause, but it doesn't help the situation. Risk-taking behaviors have been studied within soda consumption literature. Some evidence points to the fact that excessive consumption of these beverages may increase risk-taking behaviors too. Is it the direct result of the sugar-sweetened beverage or is the sugar-sweetened beverage causing their gut to be disrupted? They're not sleeping well. They're not thinking properly. It's impacting their executive function, which then trickles down into more risk-taking. It's tough to know if it's a cause and effect relationship or if it's kind of just one influence of many. But even if it influences a, a five or 10%, why not reduce that by five or 10%? So just be aware of those kind of things. I think it's very helpful. If you look at the excessive consumption literature through that soft drink lens, possible consequences that have also been studied within this population for people who consume, consume these beverages in excess, it actually might be a factor in increasing feelings of loneliness. And it may be a factor that continues to exacerbate sedentary behavior. In some populations, it it might be a factor for aggressive behavior. Some studies have looked at that, and it's been shown to increase mental health problems among some individuals. I'm preparing a couple talks right now through kind of a forensic criminal justice lens. There's actually a lot of literature that looks at nutrition, malnutrition, sugar, food insecurity, and and how it needs to be considered within the context of aggressive behavior. The the trainings I'm doing are focusing through a neurocriminology lens, and that literature does look at the role that nutrition or nutritional deficiencies or poor eating habits may play in some cases of aggressive behavior. Ruling out sleep issues is, is highly recommended. And there, I, I'm actually, I give talks once in a while on sleep disorders and sleep apnea. And there's some evidence in the obstructive sleep apnea literature that having a really 
high diet full of sugar and processed foods and the Western diet could exacerbate underlying obstructive sleep apnea problems too. So really taking that into account. There was a study done a couple years ago too that looked at soft drink consumption and what role it played in externalizing behaviors. So some individuals that consume these beverages in excess may have higher levels of externalizing behaviors. So these would be behaviors, again, that the professional or the caregiver will be able to see. So these are externalized outside of the child or the adult where they might have a tendency to engage in physical fighting, or they might have a co-occurring issue with like tobacco products or problem drinking or some sort of pathological internet use or any kind of other problematic behavior. So it is in this literature that talks about externalizing behavioral problems as well. So when we think of this through the caregiver lens, again, I think a big part has to do with parental modeling. So taking that into account, I'm not telling you what to do either way, but just Again, we've talked about like, obviously a child is very suggestible. A lot of these kids can be very suggestible and glob on to ideas. So you gotta be aware of what you're doing, what you're modeling, accessibility. What are the rules in the house with these kind of things? What kind of accessibility does the child have to other kinds of snacks? Are they always having snacks that are like processed and sugar sweetened snacks, those kind of things. Do they have food out, outlets at school where they go to school in the morning, they skip breakfast. There's some evidence to support if you skip breakfast, young kids, they may be more likely to go to school and consume some of these unhealthy products. So availability at school needs to be taken into account walking home from school or they always walking past a fast food joint or some sort of convenience store and they have a few dollars in their pocket every day and they go in there and they're doing those things. So some things to think about before I move into like, like some screening considerations, intervention things, any thoughts from your lens, Sandra? Well, I was just thinking about, and you were kind of laying it out there, how easy you know, the easy access, it's readily available to our kids, whether they're, you know, they, we may, and I know for myself, I've limited, I don't buy soda, I don't buy sugary, you know, juice, I don't buy those things at home. But now I have a kid who drives or a kid who goes to school. Um, and they, it's just so easy for them to access it. So, you know, what can parents and caregivers do if it seems that our kids are having a problem and they're consuming a lot of sugary beverages, um, you know, what can we do? Seek advice from the healthcare provider, the nutritionist, um, really think about this maybe in conjunction with a nutritionist. What are the values in the home around food? I don't think people think about this much. Like what, what are your household values around food and nutrition for one? What are the attitudes of each group member about eating healthy or not eating healthy? What is everyone's knowledge? Like if people don't know how to read a label or don't understand a carb or a gram of sugar, what does a serving truly mean? If you buy a, a large soda, that's not one serving. There's usually like two and a half servings in there. So you got to like two and a half times what it says on the label. And then Work on enhancing your skills, your awareness, how you read labels, how you model this behavior. I think those are a few things 
to take into account. Any kind of interventions when we're looking at these topics, working with counselors, maybe focusing on self-regulation training, again, learning how to pause, reflect, delay gratification. If people can't delay gratification, and if they have some sort of addictive tendency to whatever it is, they're probably not going to be able to stop that without intervention. Focusing on enhancing executive function. So maybe again, working with an executive functioning coach or some sort of skills worker or a therapist. We've talked about metacognition before in the series. Focusing on metacognition training. There's some evidence that shows that metacognition awareness may help improve health literacy, which then people will be in a better position to make more informed health decisions that hopefully will lead to an improved quality of life. Finding qualified people to receive psychoeducation from. So again, just get some good education on these things. Because back in the day, I didn't know any of this stuff. Once I became educated, I felt again more empowered to make changes. Self-efficacy, parental self-efficacy, and I think that comes with encouragement, with education. If we can improve our self-confidence and our knowledge and our resources and our network, we'll be in a better position to feel empowered to make these changes. Promote emotional intelligence. Maybe you're working with, maybe you have a child that has a profound neurodevelopmental disorder. Some of these interventions may be more difficult to implement in the short term, look to a long-term lens. But whatever you can do through that family lens, promoting your knowledge is going to be very helpful. Focusing on improving self-esteem, improving one's optimism, reduce sedentary behavior. So maybe working with a exercise specialist or someone that can set up a plan to help the family move more. Because if the family... All they do is come home after work and school and they, they're all in their gadgets till dinner time. They eat and then they go back to their gadgets. That's not good. Focusing on strengths-based approaches, I think, is very, very helpful too. Some of the sugar sweet beverage literature also talks about getting interventions into the schools. So developing like lessons, lesson plans for the schools to teach kids about these things, having more communication between students and parents and peer supports and setting up schools in a manner that promotes health and wellness and nutrition. I'm not knocking any school. I don't know all schools out there, but at least the school I went to for high school, you could get any donut you want, any candy bar you wanted, any flavor of sugar sweetened beverage, pizza whenever you wanted. I mean, it was wonderful to someone who was in high school looking back on it. My goodness, that was not cool at all. So really having a whole paradigm shift. I'm not knocking any hospitals. How many hospitals have you guys been to where on the first floor, there's a fast food joint. I mean, I've been to several and there's vending machines everywhere and there's sodas everywhere. And it's it's tough. It needs a paradigm shift in my, my opinion. Evidence supports the fact that if you can reduce the amount of time you're on the screen, that is an intervention to help reduce sugar, sweet beverage consumption. 
want to really target these as well. So helping increase our knowledge or self-efficacy, knowledge in the family system, knowledge at school, all of these things have been shown to be helpful. So those are just a few interventions to try, but talk to your healthcare provider. Our system is not set up in a way that takes a lot of this into account, in my opinion. I think we need a paradigm shift. I really do, in my opinion. And there are people talking about this more and more all the time. And I think our society is starting to get more healthy, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, I think when we know better, right, when we have that education, when we know better, we can do better. If we have that awareness, we can make better choices ourselves. And then we can, you know, really change, you know, the 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 our family lifestyle, the parents can change their lifestyle to healthy eating, healthy exercise, less, you know, being sedentary, less active, more, um, all those things really start at home uh, and bringing that awareness. And when we know better around this, we can do better. Um, And you gave us, I was taking notes, you gave us so many things that we can do um, as parents. If you had to pick, you know, me in the top three, I want to make sure our listeners can walk away with three easy things to remember where they can start today um, to help our kids, you know, to really, to, to reduce that sugary beverage, sugary food intake. Um, what would your, what would your top three be, Jared? Always do it in conjunction with a qualified healthcare professional, nutritionist, dietitian, functional medicine specialist. Each self-control. I think that's a big part. And I think also just develop an overall health and wellness plan by part of that is reducing screen time exposure, practicing health together as a family, going out for walks or watching a documentary on something healthy or learning or reading a book together doing in conjunction maybe with your neighbors or forming a group or friends or coworkers and starting to get a network of people that are really encouraged to live a healthier lifestyle. It's not just the nutrition, it's the sleep, it's the movement, it's taking breaks and not getting up at five in the morning and then running as fast as you can until midnight and then starting the day over again and you're burning yourself out. So really be mindful of taking time, slow down, breathe, pause, reflect, learn how to say no. I mean, these are just things and modeling these behaviors to your loved ones. That's where I would start. Yeah, I can see where, you know, the crazy schedule we keep, everybody's on the run. So then it just makes it easy. It opens the door for stopping for the fast food, needing the sugary coffee beverage to to kind of get us through the over the three o'clock, you know, hump where we're feeling sluggish and exhausted and we need something to keep going. And then, you know, the screen time and just all of those things, uh, we really could, we really do need that paradigm shift. Um, and, you know, the, the, this year, 2022 is winding down. So I think that, you know, our listeners and myself included, starting to take these things into consideration. And, you know, everybody wants to set those New Year's resolutions and all of that. Um, but just looking ahead to the new year, coming up with a plan where as a family, we're focusing on eating better and exercising as a family, preparing healthy meals as a family, committing to less sugar as a family, you know, make it a real team uh, endeavor 
And I think, you know, we can start all together learning and making healthier choices, which will overall improve um, just things all the way around. Uh, Would you agree, Dr. Brown? I think so. I do. I, I really do. Yeah, this is, it's such a challenge because sugar is everywhere. It's a part of the Western diet, part of our American culture, especially these sugar, sugar sweetened beverages. Um, so it's definitely eye-opening when we really stop and think about what we are consuming, what our kids are consuming. So, you know, Dr. Brown, thank you for yet again, unpacking another important topic for us. Um, I'm looking forward to our next episode uh, when we will discuss the HPA access. Um, I know that's something I don't know a whole lot about, so I'm looking forward to you teaching me and our listeners all about that. Um, so looking forward to that. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah. So Jared, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us again today. You're welcome. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for joining us today for this special series with Dr. Brown. It is so important for us to understand the impacts of sugar on our kids as well as ourselves. Uh, Be sure to listen to this episode again, if necessary, take those notes um, and just start thinking of ways you can improve your own and your kids' uh, diets and um, decrease that sugar intake. Um, Check with your healthcare professional, a nutritionist, Um, But definitely now that we know better, we can do better um, and we all can do better for our kids. Uh, Join us next week when uh, Dr. Brown unpacks the HPA axis. That is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which mediates the effects of stressors by regulating numerous physiological processes such as metabolism, immune responses, and the autonomic nervous system. This is a new topic for me, uh, but together we're going to find out how prenatal exposure to alcohol and how trauma affects the HPA access. Um, I am recording this uh, podcast today from the Adirondacks of upstate New York. A lot of, lot of uh, background noise going on between my dog barking and my family kind of coming through. Um, so we're just keeping it real. Remember, our regular episodes drop on Mondays. Be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know so that they can listen and be encouraged and equipped too. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you have not done so already. We offer resources and support to parents and caregivers struggling along this journey. So be sure to check out all of our FASD resources uh, from our free lunch and learn workshop to our facets three hour workshop coming up in January. You can learn more and you can register at our website, justicefororphansny.org. You can also check out my award-winning book, Orphans Know More, A Journey Back to the Father. It's available wherever you buy books. If you order from Amazon, uh, please make sure after you read it that you leave a review. If you'd like a signed copy, which includes a special uh, gift bookmark, you can order it from my website, sandraflack.com. Also, as always, a big shout out to our business sponsors, Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, 
National Bank of Kuksaki and Coleman Insurance Agency. These businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us do what we do. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. You can also follow me, Sandra Flack, uh, on social media as well. I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today, and I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.